As we stand in the Lord's presence this morning, let's hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God, down to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word. We open the Bible together today as sisters and brothers. You are our Father. Today, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, speak that our souls would hear. Feed us and strengthen us for your work, our work, in this your world. God, we love you because you loved us first. And we pray in the strong name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying together, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you didn't catch that just a moment ago, our focal text today is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This is a prayer of Paul's, uh, prayed for the church. Paul is praying a prayer of consecration, one for himself and one to give us a model as we walk along our way in this world, serving God and being shaped by his mercy and by his grace. The book of Ephesians is an encyclical. It's a letter that goes from church to church, giving instruction to people who are followers of Christ. It's a pretty neatly divided book. The first three chapters are indicative. The last three chapters are imperative, although there's some exceptions in, in both of those sections. And this prayer that we just prayed is the link. It's a bridge. It's a tunnel, if you will, from the what of the indicative and the so what of the imperative. Uh, We have in the first part of this this great letter uh, the blessings that are in Christ. We have a teaching about salvation that God in his grace has brought us from death to life because of his mercy and his grace. We have teaching in the first section about sanctification, about being sealed and marked by the Holy Spirit to be set apart for life with God. In the first section, we have teaching about the church. In fact, Ephesians is is really an ecclesiology. It's about the church. It's about life together with God. And and you have that from, from Jews and Greeks were brought together and made one by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Today at the end of our worship service, we, we gather with over 50 churches from around the greater Waco area to begin declaring together passages of Scripture that reinforce this image that we are one across racial lines because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, so if you imagine with me sort of two funnels, kitchen funnels taken together and, and put together, one side, the first three chapters, are all of this stuff coming in, all of this, this gospel stuff coming into our life, flowing into our life from this big open funnel. The second funnel brought together by the spouts, little narrow bridge in between, is the imperative. That's, that's so what? Because the gospel is true and because Christ is Lord, what difference should that make in our lives? as we live our lives in this world. And so, so the last chapters, four, five, and six, they're about our work in the community, about the health and the vitality of the church, about how we're to live in families, how, how we're to approach our work, how we're to grapple with our adversary, the devil. So you have all this life coming in and all of this life going out and it'd be really easy to skip over this prayer right in the middle, but we do that to our own poverty because this prayer links. It links the gospel that comes in and the gospel that goes out. It links the, the hope with the hope, beauty with beauty. It's a tunnel. When I was a little kid, one of the most important architectural feats for people in our region was the Bankhead Tunnel in Mobile, Alabama. We all wanted to get to Pensacola Beach or, or Destin or somewhere like that in the summertime at least once or twice in our growing up. And to get from, from our town to the beach, you had to go through Mobile. And Mobile was one of those great southern cities. And when you came through Mobile, you'd, you'd go right through Government Street. You'd go through the heart of the Central Business District. And, and if you came from Meridian, Mississippi, there was one skyscraper we were really proud of. It called the Three-Foot Building. Think Alico and Waco. Mid-sized towns are really proud of that one building, right? Well, we had our Alico. It was a three-foot building. But when you came through Government Street, downtown Mobile, you were covered up in both sides of these massive buildings. And, and, and a small-town kid, mid-sized town kid from the south, you'd go through Mobile, and you were just in awe. The awe of the wonder of, of architecture and the work of, of human hands. You, you were just mesmerized by those shiny buildings and, and that port city and all of that stuff. And then Government Street... To get to the, to the cool stuff at the beach, Government Street had to turn into a tunnel. It turned into the Bankhead Tunnel. Some of you been in this tunnel? As kids, we would all compare notes. What'd you do over the summer? I went through the Bankhead Tunnel and I held my breath from one side to the other. How'd you do? Well, I gave up before we got to the end. But that was our goal, to hold, you could just get there, hold your breath all the way through the Bankhead Tunnel. Anybody held your breath through the Bankhead Tunnel? You have? Way to go, we're gonna be great friends. And so you, you go into this tunnel and you'd go deep, deep down. You, you'd, go, you'd go under the Mobile River. And when you came out on the other side, head, heading, heading toward Blakely Island, coming out on the other side was water on both sides of this massive bridge that went across Mobile Bay. You remember that song, Stars on the Water? It wasn't about San Francisco, it was about Mobile. 
true. And so you get out there and you see, and see the beauty of God's creation. So you had the beauty of the city and the beauty of the bay. You had fish jumping. Those mullet would just jump right out of the water. You had gulls flying. You went from the beauty of the city to the beauty of the bay. And coming out of the Mobile uh, Bankhead Tunnel, you'd come out the end and you'd, you'd feel like this. Like you were birthed into new life. Jimmy Buffett, the musician, once described driving through the, through the Bankhead Tunnel. He said, when I came out the other end, it was like a watermelon seed was being spit out. He said, I just projected out onto the bridge and, and my whole vision changed. Beauty connected to beauty. This tunnel in between. This prayer of consecration prayed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 21, it's like a tunnel. It goes deep and it connects two beautiful things. The gospel coming in and the gospel going out. So often we, we struggle through life because we disconnect these realities. We celebrate our salvation and we try to work everything else, else out on our own. But this prayer, it's a model for us. It's a guide for us. It's an invitation to go to a deep place with a vision for coming out the other side, for the gospel giving birth to the gospel, the inner life coming out. Far from being anachronistic, prayers of consecration are invitations to vital life with God. Now, we could spend several months talking about the implications of this prayer, but many of you have lunch plans. Raise your hand. Some of you even have reservations. So today, we're just going to highlight four features of a prayer of consecration. If you're a note taker, there'll be four of them. If you're not, you'll just follow the journey. But four features of a prayer of consecration as life turns into life. The first one is that prayers of consecration are governed by humility. Paul said, I bow my knees. Now, there are, there are a number of appropriate postures for prayer. Uh, Paul was a, was a faithful Jewish person, and, and likely over the course of his life, he'd prayed in a number of different ways, in a number of different postures. He would stand before God and worship and pray. There were times like David that he sat before the Lord. Maybe at times he was even prostrate before God on the ground. But in this case, he highlights his posture in prayer and saying, I, I, I bow my knee before the Lord. What is he underlining for them? He's underlining the value and the importance of humility as we, as the followers of Jesus, come before our Lord and our God. We cannot swagger into the presence of God, nor should we shuffle. Paul gives us this model of coming before the Lord with humility. The great booming preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, in prayer, we stand where angels bow with veiled faces. There, even there, 
the cherubim and seraphim adore before the selfsame throne to which our prayers ascend. And shall we come there with stunted request and narrow, contracted faith? Spurgeon wanted to, to, to inspire boldness in prayer by calling them to humility. You see, rather than being antithetical, these things are wed together in the life of the Spirit with God. He wanted to remind them that, that when they pray, they join with the bowed host of heaven before the throne of God. They join in the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. He was reminding them of those great images of the book of Revelation where the prayers of a very earthy people ascend to God as the fragrant aroma that fills heaven with the censer bowls of the throne room of the Most High God. This is why our, our liturgical high church friends swing those, those pots of, of fire in their worship and those rooms are filled with the aroma of incense to remind us that we are doing something that is, that is bringing heaven to earth. And there's very thin in between. And if the veil was pulled back, we would all collapse in the awe and wonder of it all. When we pray, we are entering into the very presence of the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of all. And we join, we join the bowing of the angelic host. We should not swagger, nor should we shuffle. We should stand and sit and bow in his presence, remembering that God is God and that we are not. Prayers of consecration are born of humility. The second one, if you're writing them down, a prayer of consecration is, is a vulnerable prayer. It should be characterized by vulnerability. Listen to the language of Paul, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He talks about the work of God in the, in the inner self, in the inner man, in that place deep inside of us where we sometimes are afraid to go, that place where God knows us through and through, but we try to put on masks and we try to, to manipulate and change some place in us that is disconnected many, many times from the outer self that is presented to the world and sometimes those that we are even closest to. Paul, connecting the gospel coming in with the gospel going out, calls them to go deep the deep places of God and the deep places of life deep into their very selves. Do you remember Hamlet? Do you remember being forced to read Hamlet when you were a kid? Do you remember reading it for pleasure later on? I remember going to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival and seeing Hamlet played, played on the stage when I was in high school. It was awe-inspiring. You may remember that line from Hamlet where he looks at, at Gertrude and he wants her to understand the, the place in her life where all of the stuff is coming from. And he says to her, come, come and sit you down. You shall not budge. You go not. 
till I set up a glass where you may see the inmost part of you. What if indeed there was a glass that showed us the inmost part of us? Do we fear taking a peek? Are we afraid to go there? Paul is offering us a pathway to prayer that sits us down before the glass and asks us to look into the deep place of our heart, into our inner self, to look within and to see what's there. Why is this so important? Because that which is within comes out. The wisdom of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 4, 23, says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's a beautiful way of saying everything that's within comes out some way. This is where life is born. This is where life comes from. Not in the, not in the frothy shallows, but in the quiet deep. Deep in our heart. We have to lose our fear of going there. And the only way we'll lose our fear of going there is if we go there with someone stronger than ourselves, if we are willing to go there with God, who is both great and good. A number of years ago, I came to be the pastor of this church. I'm full of gray hair now. Some of you were here, many of you were not, but... But, but when I first came, uh, I, I issued an invitation. Before I could speak, I felt like I needed to hear, and I just started to ask people that were, that were here at the church at the time, what are your favorite texts of Scripture? Uh, what, what passage of Scripture has God used to shape your life? And, and one of the most popular, in fact, by and large, uh, right up there in the top three was Psalm 51. I said, man, it's a church full of sinners. And I thought, oh man, great, this is a church full of sinners that are willing to bring their lives before God. You remember that, that great psalm, it's, it's after the story of David, after David's great failure, his great, wretched, public failure. And after that was made public and brought out, and after a finger was pushed into his heart, David comes before God. He said, God, against you, Against you I have sinned. Certainly my sin is, has touched Bathsheba and Uriah and all of the people that I govern and this baby. But God, my sin is against you. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David offered his heart up. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? What's the difference between Saul and David? Well, in some measure, it's that there's this willingness to offer up the shame and the failure and the victories, the successes, and to welcome God into the inner place, into the heart. And ask God to reign there and rule there and transform there and heal there and correct there and encourage there. We cannot be afraid to go deep because that's the wellspring of life. 
That's the, that's the headwaters of your experience. That's where it all starts. It's where it all ends. We have to get over this, this fear of vulnerability before the Lord. We have to come here and ask him to cleanse us and to speak to us and empower us and to strengthen us in our inner self for his glory and for our good. That is a prayer of consecration. The third element for those note takers in the crowd the third element is the element of intimacy. As he prays, he identifies God this way. He says, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. In this designation, he calls for a, a connectedness both for the, the follower of God with God and the follower of God with other people. He identifies God as the Father do you remember Jesus, his disciples came to us, and they said, hey, everybody else is learning how to pray. Why don't you teach us how to pray? He says, John, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. Hey, we hadn't had this lesson. Don't you think it's about time? And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. How did it start? Our Father. He gave them an intimate reverent, personal way to relate with God. A lot of people lampoon this. They say we, we've, made, we've made this, this idea of a personal relationship with God some type of, some type of idol. Guys, gals, we have to cling to this notion of a personal relationship with God because it is thoroughly biblical. We've been invited to relate to God as children to a father. And from that place, we pray our prayers. We sing our songs. We have to preserve, as followers of Jesus, a sense of intimacy. We have to remember the words of the great theologian George Jones, who once said, me and Jesus have a good thing going. <laughs> and of course we do. The gospel and God's grace invites us to a good life with God in Christ. It's personal. But that's not only what it is. For Scott McKnight reminds us that the me story is contained within the we story. So the father is also the, the father from whom every family on the earth derives his name. I mean, God's the starting point of every tongue and people and nation and tribe and family. That God's the God who made it all. And God is the God for whom everyone is responsible to. And that we are called to life not simply with God, but a life with God that impacts the way we relate to every other breathing person on the face of the planet. An intimacy with God and an intimacy with others that is appropriate in life-giving. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that wonderful book, Life Together, and if you've not read it, I encourage you to. If you've read it, read it again. Talks about how we relate to one another. And he says we don't ever need to relate to one another directly. Only as we relate to Christ, 
Christ in the midst is the secret to our life together. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, who was His Father, and my Father, and your Father. This is why in Ephesians 5.21 it says we are, to, we are to submit ourselves one to another in the church. How? Out of our reverence for Christ. Intimacy. That is the prayer of consecration. And the final one. We're almost done. It's faith. Faith. Trust. Confidence that God is God and that God is great. And God is good. Years ago, there was a French writer named Jean-Pierre de Cussade. He, he, he just gave talks to nuns. And it was so good, they'd scribble down what he had to say. He had no ambition to be a great writer. They just took notes. And out of that came a book called The, the Sacrament of the Present Moment. And in that book, he said this, Faith is required of everything divine. If we live continually by faith, we shall always be in touch with God, speaking to Him face to face. Now, how do we nourish that in our lives? How do, how do we nourish a life of trust and confidence in God? Dallas Willard talked about the golden triangle of life. And one of, the, one of the pieces of that is the Spirit's work in all of our life. The confidence that the Spirit of God is at work in our experience. That, that God is pursuing us and working. He said that another part is, is set aside time with the Lord. He talked about spiritual disciplines and a life of prayer. Learning to pray the scriptures and, and read the scriptures. An intentional time with God. One of the reasons I think we, we stay away from that is because of the word discipline. It sounds like God's going to give us spankings. Some of us grew up in, in parts of the world where discipline meant a whooping. Something very unattractive. Something you don't want to run toward. Uh, and, and, or either like New Year's resolutions where you have to eat broccoli for like four months before you quit. Things like that. But spiritual disciplines are much more life-giving than that. I think we need to resurrect the old concept of holy leisure, odium sanctum, this, this, this life that sets a time, some unhurried moments with God. Maybe we just ought to start talking about spiritual disciplines as hanging out with God. It has to change for us if it's going to be part of our lives. But if we're going to nurture faith, it's got to be present. I've got friends, I've got friends that wouldn't take part in any of the traditional disciplines the way they're presented in the books that you buy in the bookstores uh, if a gun was placed to their head. But they sit out in their shop and they reload shotgun shells and they pray for everybody they know. You say, isn't that kind of like walking a labyrinth? Yeah, but you'd never get those guys to do that. But they'll sit out there and they'll read Scripture. They'll read Scripture out in God's creation. They'll read Scripture sitting in an aluminum boat and they'll pray to God. It's hanging out with God. And that's part of it. And the third part of it is the reception of our daily experiences with an eye of grace. It's the sacrament of the present moment. 
And those times in the scripture and those times in prayer, they empower us to see with the vision of God as we walk through the normal stuff of our day. And those three things come together in this golden triangle to nourish a life of confidence and faith in God. That's a consecrated life. That's a prayer of consecration. Now, what's the results of this? There, there are three, according to this text. One is that we are filled with the Spirit. That Christ may dwell in your heart. That you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. This is Paul's prayer. This is the vision of this prayer. Uh, this is the out of the tunnel. A life of strength that's given by God. Early in the, in the book of Ephesians, it says in chapter 1, verse 13, that we're marked with the Spirit. And then chapter 5, verse 18, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit of God. And this is an ongoing reality. And as we come before God and we offer Him our inner self, we offer Him our heart, He gives us in response His very breath of life. And we're filled with the fullness of God. Breathing in. I'm breathing out. We also receive the knowledge of the unknowable love of God, the love of God that surpasses our knowledge. You see, the gospel is so grand, it takes the Spirit of God to impress it into our heart in such a way that we begin to grasp it in little pieces. Brendan Manning used to say, trying to, trying to grasp the love of God is like trying to catch a hurricane in a shrimp net. But the Spirit of God allows us to, to comprehend and to grasp and measure the depth and the height and the width of the wild and radical love of God in Christ. And we receive power for living. The text says the power that works within us. Ralph Herring said years ago, when the Spirit brings a man to surrender to Jesus, he next becomes the occupying power to bring about Christ's actual enthronement within. So the final question this morning as we consider this prayer of consecration is who is enthroned in your heart? Do you sit there as a sovereign self calling the shots of your days? Or has the Spirit enthroned Christ there and empowered you to live in such a way that the gospel that has come in gets out in all the various avenues of experience. Let's bring it to him. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word that nourishes our lives. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have because of the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth that is poured into our life through your word and spirit. And Lord, we pray today that we would bend our knee, we would humble ourselves before you, that we would come before you asking you to do deep work in ourselves, that life may come out of us, and hope and peace. God, we thank you for loving us. We pray in Jesus' sweet name, amen and amen. Friends, let's stand. We're going to sing a hymn of commitment. If you have made commitments to the Lord in the privacy of your heart and your inner self, and you would make them publicly today, we invite you to come uh, for God's glory.
and for your good. David, please lead us, friend.